Welcome into Nacho's Glen House Stories. Folks, when I tell you the person who is our guest this week is OG in content, he's OG in content. Before a lot of the people jumped on video creation to talk about plants and gardening, my friend Paul Zimmerman was one of the very first people doing it and is still creating outstanding rose-related content. And one of those things, Paul, that I think you just did, which was long overdue, is you got together three of the top academic professorial types in the country together to talk about in a year of 2020, Paul, there's there's other scary viruses, but this was for rose people, one of the original scary viruses, which is rose rosette disease. Tell me first, how did you wrangle those three guys to get together to talk about it? Because I, I do think there's such tremendous misinformation out there that getting the three of them together is really important to hear it from like essentially the source. Yeah, well, thanks, Stephen. Hey, it's good to talk to you again and be be back on the show. I always I enjoyed it the last time, and well, I know I'm going to enjoy it again. As you say, you and I have no problems finding things to talk about. Um, so, yeah, with rose rosette disease, and for those of you who don't know what it is, it attacks roses specifically, comes from a very specific mite, and it's 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 sort of a, a creates sort of a witch's broom. The leaves get deformed, hyperthorniness, lots of extra thorns, and very reddish growth. That's what rose rosette disease is. And I know Steve will go into more detail in a bit, but the bottom line was I did this video um, because there's so much misinformation, as you mentioned, and I felt it was time to sort of have let's get a clear-eyed, you know scientifically based back uh, information piece out there. The video ended up being about 50 minutes. I was hoping to keep it under 30 minutes, but there was so much good content. I actually edited out, believe it or not, stuff. And so Dr. Mark Windham, who's at the University of Tennessee, is a friend of mine. So I called Mark and I said, look, this is what I want to do. Um, I said, obviously, I want you on it. I said, I'd love to have a couple more. And that's when he recommended Dr. David Byrne from Texas A&M, who I knew about, and Dr. Kevin Ong, also from Texas A&M. And the three of us did this via Zoom. Um, so it's an informal interview via Zoom. And you'll see, you know, us, us moving in and out. Um, I've got a background in editing. There's a lot of extra visuals in there as well, because um, I really feel this is a visual story that needs to be told. And that's basically how the video came about. We did about uh, about an hour and a half interview and then, you know, the editing process. And, uh, of course, we're using it as a fundraiser for the guy's research because they didn't get the grant that they uh, were supposed to get. You mentioned the misinformation thing, and we had Dr. Wyndham on the podcast uh, about a year ago now. And I think what concerns me still the most, Paul, is the amount of misinformation that's out there about it. Um, you know, I, I hear from a lot of people, as I'm sure you do, that landscapers, I'll, I'll lump in a giant group of people together there, Paul that they tell them, oh, it's uh, it, it's not a big deal. You just burn it out. Um, it's spread through the soil. Uh, if you have other roses that are in the area, that they're guaranteed to get it. It's this very anecdotal approach to it. And did you feel at the end of the conversation that that's still like the, the number one group of people that we need to maybe reach or like these commercial contract landscape people that are out there taking care of some of these roses in those type settings? Absolutely, we do. Um, and one of the things, you know, roses have gotten more popular in commercial settings, like you say, median strips, malls, shopping centers, et cetera, et cetera. And we need to educate the people who take care of those roses as to what it looks like so they can get it out. Um, immediately and deal with it, the proper methods of dealing with it. 
There's no cure for Rose Rosette disease, and it will kill the plant, and it will spread. Um, again, it takes a very specific mite to spread it, um, but it does spread. But if but the mite is is windborne, it does not fly, and that's a real key to the whole thing. So if you can clean infected plants from around your area, you are far less likely to get the disease. And a slight anecdote that I talked about in the video as well. So I live on a farm. We're fairly rural here in the upstate of South Carolina. Uh, one of the things that seeds itself like crazy is Rosa multiflora, wild multiflora, small white flowers. It's a really susceptible to rose rosette disease. And so I scout the area constantly. And if I happen to see it, my rose, regular rose gardens uh, with perennials and stuff, if I happen to see it there, I'll immediately start walking up wind. And inevitably, I'm going to find some diseased multiflora, which I will then destroy. Um, I will literally take a tractor and drag it out if that's what I have to do. So if we can teach these commercial growers and landscapers and commercial gardeners, et cetera, to recognize the disease, what to do about it, get it out immediately, we're going to really, really go a long way towards containing the spread of it. And that has been the challenge. You know, we've, yes. I'd done a video a highlight here on Instagram for an area not too far, thankfully far enough from me, Paul, that it doesn't make me, you know, worry about it too much, but you know, a couple of miles down the road kind of situation. And there is a landscaped parking lot development, which looks like the epicenter of Rose Rosette disease slash virus uh, in this part of the world, right? It, there must be 50 plants, all 50 of them have it. And it's just crazy. And I'm, I'm sure you went over this too with Dr. Wyndham. One of the things that is really bad is when one of these plants becomes infected with the, the virus, it populates the mite even more so. The mite population explodes because it gives them something to feed on and then they're dispersed even more. So you have these massive epicenters that break out. Do you have any sense of, is this a situation where if you see something, say something, you, you know, I, I wonder what the role of like the average gardener, rose enthusiast, who's a little bit knowledgeable. Like when you see one of these settings, like, what do you think people should do? I mean, do we, do we hang a note on the rose, Paul? Like, what do we do? You know, it's like, because you do worry because we don't, uh, I think Dr. Wyndham always says it best, right? It's like, how far can a, a piece of dust travel? Cause that's the size of the mite we're talking about that. What do you do if you come across one of these commercial settings? I think what we need to do is arm ourselves with information, um, you know, have photographs or whatever. You know, I know there's been a couple of like door cards that have been made and suggested. But I think the thing to do, too, if it's a large epicenter like you're talking about, is find out who who's responsible for that or who owns it or whatever the case may be. And you just walk in there and go, just want to let you know this is who I am. You know, list your bona fides. That's always very important. Um, and then at the same time, then say, you know, this is what you've got. This is what it is. And this is what you need to do about it. And this is this is the danger um, in leaving it alone, um, particularly if you catch it on one or two bushes. If they've got like 100, you can say, you know, we can save the other 98 bushes if you'll just follow some very simple instructions. So it's going to take us as, as, as Rosarians, gardeners who have knowledge of this thing to basically just get out there and say, this is what you got. And this is what you got to do about it. You know, the other reason I created the video, I'm hoping it's a teaching tool. Um, I already know a lot of rose societies that are using it as a class, you know, this time of, of when you can't necessarily meet in person. Well, how nice to have a 50 minute online class that you can do and then discuss afterwards. So there was, a, there was a lot of different levels that I used for that, but you can certainly point at this video and go here, take a look at this. This is going to educate yourself. Take 50 minutes and take a course. Well, and I think you're right in the fact that all three professors give that credibility and exclamation point to it. And because there was, unfortunately, I think this period of time with Rose Rosette where 
it, it was being talked about, as I mentioned, anecdotally. And I think that was dangerous. I even saw it within the last few years on social media, people and even message groups across the interwebs, Paul, where people were just telling them, oh, just print it off. It's no big deal. If you print it off, it goes away. There was this real lack of understanding amongst communities of people of the fact that this is not something that goes away once it's in the vascular system of the plant. It's there. And where did you walk away? Because I think this is what people want to know. And I don't really know if there is an answer to this or not, Paul, that what's next? I, I know there's been some talk, but there's some species that show some level of resistance to it. Did you walk away from your conversation with the three of them with any kind of feeling that we're anywhere close to something like that? So they are finding varieties that do seem to have more resistance to it. And the idea is to try to breed with those varieties. Um, so that would be one way to hopefully potentially in the future. But that's a long ways off. And as Dr. Kevin Ong talks about, you know, there may be varieties that are resistant to it, but are they varieties that you want in your garden? They're mostly species roses, spring flowering, single petal. I like species roses, but, you know, do I want a garden full of them? So I think... So I, I don't I don't get the sense from them that we're close to getting these you know RRD resistant varieties. Are we close to a cure? That's a different story. Um, they're still learning so much about it, um, which is why the research these gentlemen are doing is so important. And the more we learn, the more we can hopefully maybe sometime get to the point where we can deal with it. But the more we learn, the more that we can find ways to live with it and work with it. And I think that's going to be the future of RRD. I don't think it's going to be something you're going to get rid of. But it's something that we can collectively manage um, through education, really, and, and paying attention. You mentioned their, the grant money was lost. And I know a little bit about this story, Paul. I'm sure you know more. How did this happen, Paul? How did they have grant money and then they lost the grant money? It was some kind of filing issue that happened? No, it's a grant that they apply for every year. I can't remember who. It's a federal grant. I can't remember exactly where it comes from off the top of my head, but it's, the information's on the, on the video. Um, and essentially they applied for it and for some reason they didn't get it. Um, but a lot of grants didn't go out last year for whatever reason. And so that's, that's basically what happened. Um, you know, the university doesn't really fund the research of this. This is, this is how it's funded. And while, while they need more than we're trying to raise, we're trying to raise money very specifically to save the two research gardens, one at Texas A&M and one at University of Tennessee. These gentlemen work very closely together. They've got 10 years worth of research in those gardens in terms of disease-resistant varieties, how rose rosette moves, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And if they lose those gardens, we're going to go back 10 years, um, if not more. And so that's that's kind of the call for urgency of like, you know, let's let's at least save these research gardens. Um, so when they do get hopefully get the grant again next year, the gardens will be there and they can pick right back up again. Does it ever bum you out, Paul, that it bums me out? Is It bums me out, Paul. So I'm really just venting here. I'm projecting a little. Do Does it bother you that in the world of horticulture, which is, you know, ornamentals, mostly what we refer to it as versus the world of edible agriculture, that the funding is always short? It's always short, right? When it comes to genetic analysis, when it comes to big issues like this with the rose industry, what is sort of been, I know you talk to people within like the industry nursery side of it. Is there any concern on their part that there's just not enough money to give these professors the tools that they really need? Yeah, there's a huge concern. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. The ornamental industry is is obviously the agricultural farming industry that feeds our nation. That's incredibly important. I'm, I'm not trying to put up roses up with, you know, wheat production and corn. 
But there is, you know, it's a a huge economic engine. The the ornamental in plant industry, as you well know, uh, a lot of people have jobs because of it. And let's be honest, you know, it also gives a lot of people pleasure. Um, you know, gardening is something that people love to do, and it's a great outdoor activity. You got your hands in the soil. You learn about nature. Uh, it's good for wildlife. It's good for beneficial insects. I mean, there's all kinds of things that come out of gardening. So. Yeah, I think it's a little short-sighted that there's not research for the ornamental industry. Again, I'm not saying it should be at the level of the agricultural food industry, but it's my yeah. I think absolutely it needs there needs to be more attention paid to this um, because you were talking about misinformation about early about RRD and the other void that was being filled was not only misinformation but scary misinformation. You know, just doomsday scenarios for the rose industry to scare people away, and and if they can, you know, through education and funding teach rose growers and gardeners, it's okay to buy roses and grow them even if we have RRD present. And, and I, I also wonder too, and you you know a lot of people that I know as well, small nurseries, back before we started recording, we were talking about specialty, uh, small-scale rose growers, and then just in general, nurseries across the board, perennial trees, shrub, the whole shooting match as far as yeah. how important they are. And one of the things that has come up on a few of the recent podcasts, Paul, is the price of plants that there is unfortunately and i think a lot of this can be put towards the big box store but occasionally gardeners have leaned towards the frugal side as well that a plant that is sometimes three or four years old and it being out on the market for sometimes even just like thirty dollars is sometimes considered expensive by people and that also hurts the industry on these type issues sometimes. Don't you feel that like the prices, sometimes the pressure is so low, the margins are so low that there's not money from the private side of this within like the industry, finger quotes, to put money into research sometimes? No, you're right. The industry does operate on thinner margins. Um, you know, if, if, if you... If, if you as Dr. Keith Zeri, who was a hybridizer at Jackson Perkins, once said, if you want to lose a family for fortune, open a nursery. Um, you know, it's always a very, very apt quote. Um, you know, this labor is a love for most of these people, um, even, on a, even on a large scale. Even if you go to some of the big nurseries, it's still labors of love. But yes, they make money. I mean, that's that's fine. That's that's what they're supposed to be doing. But no, this, it's not going to get funded from the industry. The money's just not there. Um, you know, and you're not talking huge grants, but these are industries that, that raise a lot of money in taxes and revenue and, and things like that. So, you know, there needs to be some money given back to them, um, to pursue research like this. You know, I mean, do you think that's the big takeaway for people too? Like, don't, like you mentioned it already. Don't panic people. It's okay. You know, you can buy roses. It's not that big of an issue. Well, we'll talk about something here in a second that I think is also important along these same lines. But what is sort of your general take on like for an average gardener, you you have this conversation, it's out there for people. I'll put the link to it in the podcast description as well for people to check out. But what's the general takeaway? I mean, I think you're right. There was this moment of like, oh my God, we can't buy a rose plant. It's going to get this horrible virus kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that my takeaway is this, and, that, and that's what we did with the video, um, I feel. Um, and, and, you know, I did a lot of pre-production on that video before we even started. We I scripted. I didn't script it out, but I had bullet points. I said, this is what we want to hit. This is what we want to do. And the biggest goal at the end of the day was to take the fear out of, out of growing roses. And so, you know, I tell people, if you grow roses, you grow plants. You know, if you ask a bunch of gardeners, have you ever had a, have, have you never had a plant die? You're not going to see a single hand go up. We've all had plants die. It could be winter freeze. It could be voles. It could be a disease. It could be all kinds of different things. 
you know, I have grown, you know, literally thousands of roses in my lifetime. Um, and I live in the epicenter of rose rosette disease. I've lost maybe 12, 15 plants to rose rosette disease out of the thousands of roses that I've grown in this area for the last 20 years. Um, but I did it by learning what it was and what to do about it. And that's the key to the whole thing. I, you know, I always tell people I lose more roses to late winter freezes rose rosette disease i've lost more to foals probably than i've ever lost to rose rosette disease so and as mark windham says at the uh, at the end of the thing you know if you lose a rose to rose rosette well great now you got an excuse to buy another one yeah that's it and, and i think there was that yeah. moment of like people were even telling consumers that if you have a rose and it gets rose rosette disease you can't plant other roses in that area you need to remove the roses around it. You can't plant roses essentially, which was completely ridiculous and anecdotal and not oh, based upon totally any. False. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And it was just, it was being prolific, you know, just multiplied like a lot of things these days, Paul, there's fake news all over the place. No matter who's telling you there's fake news, yeah. there is indeed fake news somehow. Um, but let's, yeah. switch, let's switch gears to another subject that I think is also a little bit of fake news. And one of the things for all of you that if you do or if you don't follow Paul, you're just ridiculous. Get your lives together, number one. Number two, that I appreciate about you is you've been creating content for a long time to educate people. And I think that shows your commitment to your passion about plants and roses specifically. And one of the videos that you probably put together maybe even close to 10 years ago now, Paul, because where, as you mentioned, in South Carolina, where I'm at here in Tennessee, it's not the most kind environment when it comes to sometimes disease and bug pressure on certain rose cultivars. So you had done a video talking about summer cleanup on roses. And I want to sort of expound on that topic a little bit. And do you think on not all cultivars, but many that this summer pruning technique, a cleanup, where essentially you let some things happen to the rose and then you clean it up to set it up for another beautiful flush as the temperatures finally start to wind down a little bit. Do you think that is sort of maybe the smartest approach for a Southern garden in particular? Absolutely, I think it is. Um, I think it's a good approach for most any garden. And and let me sort of give you the background about how why I came up with this, this thought, philosophy, and this theory. I had gardened in Los Angeles um, until we moved here full-time in 2000, even though we had the farm beforehand. And I noticed a couple of things. Um, what happened um, right around July, uh, that's when the temperatures in the south tend to get very hot and very humid. Um, it goes for about six to seven weeks into, you know, middle, end of August. In August, the days can be hot, but the nights turn cooler. And that's a key that I'm going to come circle back to in just a moment. So what I learned is that, okay, when that happened, the roses would start to slow down. Basically, they wouldn't grow as much. They wouldn't bloom as much. They actually needed less water. I observed that at my nursery. It could be 95 degrees and 98% humidity, and they needed almost no water because they were shutting down, basically. So I thought, okay, I'm not gonna, I don't have an active growing period here. That's the first thing. The second thing is the Japanese beetles. That's when they show up, at least in my part of the world. They show up around July. They're here for about four weeks, five weeks, something like that. Well, this is an organic farm. There are no insecticides and no fungicides, no chemical fertilizers on this farm. And the, the only thing that they will tell you to use on Japanese beetles is seven dust, S-E-V-I-N. Well, look it up. It kills like over 500 different kinds of insects, including bees, pollinators, butterflies, you name it. And I ain't putting that in my garden. I'm not going to do it. So what I decided to do was come up with this midsummer care philosophy. The roses have had their big spring flush. Um, you know, I get a great May and I get a great June and then they start to shut down. They've grown a lot. 
during that period because they were just, you know, I'm giving some extra, you know, organic fertilizers and things to kind of get that nice flush going. So now I'm like, okay, now it's summertime. The beetles are coming anyway. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to clean them up. I'm going to trim them back if I need to. I'm not going to prune them like I do a hard prune, but I'll take them down by a third. I'll look for dead growth, clean any dead canes that are coming out of there. I'll look for wheat growth that is coming out of there. If I have an old cane that stopped producing, I'll take it out at the base to reinvigorate new canes when the active period starts again. And then what happens in my part of the world, specifically mid-August, the nights turn cooler and that becomes, that's actually our second most active growing period. The roses wake up, they start to take off. The Japanese beetles are gone by then. So now I've basically groomed my roses. The Japanese beetles started grooming them. I worked along with them. I've shaped them up. I've set them up for summer. I'll give them a nice light non-time release fertilizer um, right about now. I actually did it about two weeks ago. And I'll set them up for fall. And they basically just go up until, you know, until frost hits. So that's that's how this philosophy came about. And it's also telling people, you know, you don't you can prune and shape your roses all year long. You don't have to wait for, quote unquote, pruning time. And the other thing that I did, did was I layered in summer blooming perennials. A lot of people who grow roses put in spring flowering perennials. I don't need flowers in the spring. I got roses. What I need is something in the summertime. So the summertime is when my agastache and my rutabecchia and my nepeta and my, you know, veronica, that's when all that stuff kicks in. So that gives me all that color and structure to the garden while I'm basically grooming the roses and, and slowing them down and getting them ready for fall. That, my friends, for all of you, is, is, is like the best idea. Because, Paul, you and I both get these same questions, right? Mm-hmm. My roses, they look bad, right? People let the roses go. And we have this paradigm, unfortunately, and, and some of it's just, you know, garden historical knowledge that's from other parts of the world. And it's not, you know, apply, it's not applicable to like where you and I are at or other people are at that there was this calendar date that you touched roses and that was it, right? Oh, yeah. There was this one time yeah. of year that you went out and you pruned, depending upon where you're at in the world, it was either November or maybe even very, very late winter, early spring. Those were the oh, philosophies. Yeah. If you miss that date, they're going to come take your secretaries away. But and that's you'll be it. And growing roses forever. Monty Don is going <laughs> to yell at you and, oh, yeah. and you're never going to get to see oh, the, yeah. you're never going to get to see the dogs again. It's horrible, you know? Those police will send a drone over to make yes. sure you've done. Oh, yeah. Go so, <laughs> do you, and in particular, do you think, and we had, I can't even remember what guest it was, Paul. We've had so many guests recently, but I did, I, I'm recording like three of these a day, Paul. I forget people's names by the end of it. The, <laughs> the fact no there was, I'll call you Joe at some, at some point for no apparent reason. So, we had a guest recently who was talking about how Southern gardening, they think, is seeing a bit of a renaissance. Um, it was Mark Weathington. That's who it was from the Ralston Arboretum. But, you know, he's biased. But yeah. do you think that is sort of true, though? Because we were for so long hearing some of these things out of Europe, Pacific Northwest, California, as you mentioned, where you had come from originally growing roses. Do you think that's – unfortunately, I would say you and I, where we garden, is more comparable to someone who lives in Ohio than listening to somebody who lives – in the UK and that the experience and the things you're talking about with a summer cleanup routine are actually better for those folks as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the UK, you know, their, their peak bloom is June, you know, that, and their summer is, you know, that they get about two months, three, two and a half months, maybe three at most, and then it's gone. You know, it's more like new England really, if you think about it. Um, but gardening in the South has its challenges and, and, and its rewards quite honestly. And having grown roses in Los Angeles, and now in the upstate of South Carolina, I'll take the upstate of South Carolina over Los Angeles any day. 
And a lot of Rosarians are going to be astonished by that comment because that's Southern California is supposed to be Rose Heaven. They are more work and there's more disease in Southern California than there is in the Garden of the South. But you just got, you just blew people's minds, Paul. We got to stop. Right. We got to stop there. Tell me oh, why. Wait, there's the rose police drone. Oh my god, <laughs> that's it, right? You can only grow beautiful roses in California. Everybody knows that, Paul. Why? Because the problem too is we've got people from Southern California telling us in the South how to grow roses. I had I, I there's one. I'm not going to name the person's name. That's irrelevant. But very high up in the industry and who who produces and sells roses on a large large scale, who basically said, you know, we didn't even bother to t- test roses in the South because y'all can't grow them down there anyway. Wow. And I'm like, I don't even know where to begin <laughs> with that comment, you know, but, you, but you've got to deal with our climate. I mean, you know, we have we have a dormant period, which is great. Plants like dormancy, I think, having lived in a place where there is no dormancy. You know, we know we're going to have spring. We've got the great rains that come. Nothing waters a plant like rain. Uh, you know, it, it just is nothing comparable to it. You know, and then, you know, you're going to have that summer. And that's what you do in that summer is the key to, to working with that garden. You know, the plants that don't like the summer, that's the time to clean them up, deal with them, work with them. But then make sure you've got summer plants that do like your area to give you the color and the flower that goes into it. Um, but I agree. I mean, you know, upper mid- Midwest is not going to be too different from us. You know, I live in Chicago. They, summer in Chicago could be brutal. Do you think that comment that was made to you also, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to get you in trouble, Paul. People are always like, oh, Steve, you're always trying to get people to say things. Well, yeah, because <laughs> sometimes those things happen to be true, folks. It's not my yeah. fault, okay? The truth yeah. hurts occasionally. Do you you feel like that's part of the problem with sometimes the production side of the rose industry being so centralized in California and on the West Coast that they have zero idea about the climates that you and I and what we're talking about even up in Chicago, the upper Midwest, and that, you know, they claim they trial things, but, you know, do they really, Paul? I mean, do they really? That that there's this disconnect that has existed on a lot of these subjects like performance and and there being some kind of perception, because I've heard other people say similar things to what you had been told, that just like, oh, roses just don't grow there well at all. Which, which is just complete nonsense too. Yeah, it is. And, and, and I think it used to be like that a lot more. Um, if you go back in the 80s and the 90s and, you know, the middle 90s is when I kind of got to cut my teeth on roses to begin with. It was a very California-centric um, Wasco business. Um, you know, they test roses out in the, you know, the desert fields, which are, you know, zero humidity and high heat. And then they'd send it to the southeast and it wouldn't do well. It's like, well, duh. Um, and that began to change. Uh, so I let me back up here a little bit, Steve. I sort of look at roses in America as before knockout and after knockout. Mm. And that, that was a real seminal moment in, in among many um, in the rose industry. But certainly the one in the last 40, 50 years, I think, is, is certainly be comparable to that. That was an earth-shattering moment for the industry because it taught the industry that there's a lot of people who want to grow roses. They just didn't want to grow the roses they were producing. Um, and also that people, you know, don't necessarily have to have always have the hybrid tea classic form. But what happened with Knockout was this is the result of Conard Pyle and Steve Hutton, who was now retired, but was the former owner of Conard Pyle. He had partnered with Star Roses. They were based in Pennsylvania. And so they started testing the roses in Pennsylvania, own route, no spray. And it's called the sweat box. It's called hell for a reason. Um, and the trial is brutal. But that's a more comparable condition to you and I, and really everybody this side of the Mississippi River, um, than California is. And so then the other nurseries followed suit. So the industry, to their credit, is recognizing exactly what you're talking about. 
you know, when I started the Biltmore International Rose Trials, which was a sustainable rose trial, it was partly for that reason to just show, yes, you can grow roses here. Now, what's happened since is we have a trial called the American Garden Rose Selection Trials. And it's a regional trial that gives regional awards. And they're in all parts of the country. And so now the industry is beginning to recognize that they need to say, okay, this is a great southeastern rose, but maybe not a northwestern rose. Or this is, you know, and vice versa. So we're starting to see roses become regionalized like plants are regionalized. You know, I can't grow lavender. I'd love to grow lavender. It doesn't grow in clay soil. So that's what we're starting to see. We're going to start to see roses become more regionalized in terms of the, the where they're sold and the information that comes with them. So the, it used to be like that, but the industry, to its credit, recognizes the issue and is, is really leading the way in trying to make sure that these things are getting more regional knowledge. Well, and it comes down to the same topic, kids. We got to stop dumbing it down. Right, you guys yeah. are capable people. You people, you downloaded a podcast. You have a magic device in your pocket. You people can do these things, right? Like we don't need to treat yeah. you as if you're you're infantile constantly. And there is, it's people will always ask Paul. They're like, "What, David?" Because you know when you're growing 500 roses, Paul of David Austin. They're like, "Which one is?" And I always tell people, you know, it's a very mixed bag as far as performance goes. Olivia yeah. Rose Austin is beautiful. It's a very clean rose. It does great. It seems to never bat an eyelash at anything. We're on the flip side. Tranquility looks like it was it was born with black spot in this region of the world and just defoliates at the drop of a hat, right? So it's this yeah. very, as you said, climate specific. And now the more we're learning, we're even learning that the dreaded evil villain Diplocarpin, aka black spot, is even regionally different in its evolution. So we have that component to go on top of this as well. How do you feel the summer pruning affects black spot? I would have to imagine because you're keeping the plant in flush with healthy, fresh new growth that it benefits from that too. Absolutely it does. I mean, you know, the, the thing about, you know, air circulation, I'm, I'm not a big believer in planting roses six feet apart to get air circulation. But in terms of cleaning out the center of the plant, and really any plant, is just going to help. And that's the other reason I do it, because I'm, you know, I'm going to get black spot in the summer in South Carolina. Hello. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a shock. I'm expecting it to come. Um, but by cleaning the plants up when I've got it, that way, at least when the plants start to grow actively again, they can put their energy into the fresh new growth and keep them nutritionally fed, you know, try to boost their immune system. So they've got they've also got the tools to help battle the black spot. So it's not just me. And again, I don't use a fungicide. I'll use a copper spray if it gets out of hand, but that's about it. But I generally let the rose fight through it. Um, and quite honestly, if I have a rose that consistently gets black spot in my garden, I just go get a shovel because um, I'm just I, I don't have time. Well, and I think that's that's part of it too. As I've told people, you know, you have to be willing to. And and I think this bridges us into a couple of other topics to explore. Also, Paul, that we we were talking before we were recording about in the year of 2020 and global pandemics, we've had more people interested in gardening. We see it on the industry side of it, the wholesale side of it. Sales are up. Sales are up at big box stores for gardening as a category. They're up at independent garden center, online, all the places. Do you think this is also an opportunity, as I love to talk about, Paul, to stop dumbing down this whole thing, to, to get people with people like yourself, like with the conversations that you and I are having, where we can get these people that are interested, they're at the tip of the spear of their entry into it, and instead of just selling them a bunch of nonsense, tell them, as you've already said in the conversation, you're going to kill plants. Like, that's part of this. Like, we've all killed plants. If you haven't killed a plant three times, you don't know it yet. That 
that's acceptable. That if you buy a rose and the rose fails, be ruthless with it. Like be brave. Just go out, get rid of it. There's plenty of other roses to grow. And I think the key, what you just said, when a plant dies, that's acceptable. That's the key. That's acceptable. Yes, it's a failure in gardening is acceptable. In fact, it's encouraged because that's the only way you're going to learn. You know, in gardening, you don't learn unless you really mess it up somehow. Um, and that's where you learn from. See, I totally agree. You know, yes, you, a plant's going to die on you. Yes, a plant's going to get diseased. Yes, a plant's going to get an insect. But you know what? That's okay because that's nature. Nature isn't perfect out there, and we shouldn't expect our gardens to be perfect. So I totally agree. You know, just this. I, to me, it's a lot of it's, you know, I do want to do my rose talks. I tell people, particularly when I do it to master gardeners or, or you know, horticultural groups as opposed to rose groups, which are actually my favorite people to talk to. I look at them and say, look, you guys are master gardeners. You know how to take care of plants, you know, but you're terrified of roses because of all these other silly little rules that you've been told about. But here's the deal. It's just a plant. Do what you do to any other plant. So a lot of what I feel the, the thing to do is, is to, like you say, don't dumb it down. Be realistic with them, but give them permission to, to, to fail or to try something new or to try something different. You know, that that's the key to gardening is, is just get out there and do it. And if you mess it up, you'll learn from it and hopefully you won't do it again, but it's okay. Who do we blame some of this on, Paul? The outward facing bud talk, right? Let me give you, let me give you guys all the rose talk, right? You already heard us talk about the dates on the calendar, oh, yeah. right? There oh, are yeah. these magic dates. <laughs> exactly, right? We do, Paul, we do. These podcasts go yeah. long, right? We're, 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 we're yeah. long format. The, who do we blame? Because there has been, uh, I'll give you the other one, Paul, that you hear this with constantly, hydrangeas. Hydrangea and roses for all of the history of the two plants seem like there are these, I refer to them as crazy Uncle Larry rules, right? They're not really based in science. They're not really based on any kind of, especially nursery production, for God's sake. So everything done in nursery production is done with large-scale mechanized equipment, kids, that they're definitely not from there, but you hear them constantly. Outward facing buds, do this, do that, prune Usually on this. We said air circulation, plant them six feet apart, don't let cross. That's it. it. Goes I, on and on and on. I have had people say, don't underplant roses with anything. Oh, right? I know. Well, that's just ridiculous. But, but yet, but yet, when we look at, you know, we'll pick on the UK, some of the most iconic gardens. In the world, mutual friend Michael Marriott, right? People like that who go to these gardens, consult with people over there. We see the exact opposite, Paul. We 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 see underplantings and roses surrounded by other beautiful companion plants. But yet, somewhere, who do we blame? Who came up with this? If you if there was someone the other day, it was hysterical. Instagram Live, I'm doing. I'm hard cutting a rose, right? Like hard cutting it in the end of July, right? Doing exactly what we're talking about with summer cleanup. And I hit this rose hard, Paul, just to prove a point, right? Just to prove the point that you can get this plant to have its dormant buds open. It doesn't matter. We cut it down. It looked like six silly sticks coming up out of the ground. And here we are, as you and I record this, just four or five weeks later, and the thing's flushed out beautiful new growth. It looks awesome. It's going to set buds soon, all of these things. So despite all the facts, despite all the science, who do we blame, Paul, for this nonsense? Well, the nonsense came out. I'm not going to necessarily blame because I've got a lot of friends, but um, the the reason is is uh, the conversation was dominated for quite a while by people who exhibit roses. And as I always say, rose exhibitors are probably some of the most hardest working, talented gardeners out there. They, it takes a lot of work and dedication to be an exhibitor. 
But keep in mind what the exhibitor's after. The exhibitor's not after a great plant or a great necessarily garden, even though some of them have beautiful gardens. They're after that, that flower to go win the queen of show um, at the Rose Show. So what they do when they talk about, you know, an outward facing bud eye, well, that's the reason that shapes the plant. The plant, the new growth comes in the direction the bud eye is facing. So if it's facing away from the center of the plant, the growth continually goes away from the center of the plant. And that gives you that kind of candelabra kind of thing, if you think about what I'm talking about. But what does that produce? Well, that produces blooms that don't rub up against each other and damage each other before you can get them to the show. You know, and you cut down hard because the harder you cut, the longer a stem you're going to get on a hybrid tea. Again, that looks better at the Rocha. So that's the end game that they're after. And unlike England, which did have rose shows, it was actually rented, uh, invented by the Reverend Dean Hole, who started the late Royal National Rose Society. That was never the emphasis. The emphasis there is gardening. And but the emphasis in America has been that exhibition or that long stem rose for Mother's Day or whatever the case may be. And the American breeding programs have breed roses, period. The European houses like Cortez and Tantau and Delbard and, and even Austin, for that matter, they breed a line of garden roses. And then they breed a line of cut flower floral roses. And they won't sell the floral roses for the garden because they'll tell you to your face, you don't want to put those in your garden. They're lousy garden plants. And so that's where a lot of these rules came from. And what's been nice, again, I'll go back to before and after knockout. Knockout taught people, hey, a rose can be used like a flowering shrub in a border. And hey, I can plant napita underneath it. I can plant, you know, other plants with it. And like you say, the iconic gardens in the UK, I mean, they're, they're stunning to wander through. And, and they, you know, I've, I've walked through them with Americans who've never seen a garden like this, and it absolutely blows their mind. That is our next topic, Paul. Beautifully done. So I'm the master of segues. Master. Paul Paul and I are going to start our own radio show. We're going to start selling some real estate licenses to you guys. It'll be fantastic. Yeah, we'll call it the master segue show. Exactly. The topic seamlessly and you'll never see it coming. (laughs) The, you know, we've recently had, in no particular order, uh, my friend Jimmy Blake from Ireland was on, uh, Joe Thompson, who's a, a fantastic British garden designer as well. We, we keep coming back to this issue, Paul, and, and I think with roses in particular, I think they are paramount in this conversation. That in Europe, and the British in particular, do a great job creating gardens where it feels like Americans are more accustomed to landscape. It's just this, a plant. Now we get out a measuring stick, we plant it another six feet away, we take another plant, and we plant it another yeah. six feet away, and yeah. plants were socially distancing before any of us were in American landscapes. Mm-hmm. Do When you, you did a tour last year, and as you just said, you had people that came over for probably the first time, do you think it almost takes people seeing it, Paul? Like you have to actually go. Like pictures are great. Instagram is great. Facebook is great. Pinterest is great. Whatever you're on, people, TikTok, whatever, it's all fine. But do you think they almost have to go to have that immersive experience to see it in person? It's the best way. I mean, if you can get over uh, to England, you know, when the gardens are blooming, it's absolutely the best way to just wander in there and spend hours in there. You know, don't start thinking you're going to go from garden to garden to garden. When I, when I started doing my tour, putting it together with Boxwood Tours, you know, they had us doing like three gardens a day. And I said, I stopped, stopped them. I said, no, no, absolutely not. We're going to do no more than two. And we're going to spend one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And I said, what you're going to give these folks 
is you're going to give, we're going we're gonna to do the tour. We work with, with head gardeners. We did classes. I did a lot of educational stuff when I was there. That was part of the goal. But then I said, we're going to give these folks a minimum, a minimum at the end of one hour to wander on their own. And I said, that's, that's what they're going to want to do. And I was watching them and they would wander through when they had, you know, they had notes. They were taking notebooks and taking photographs and, oh my gosh, I can do that. I can do that. And so that's really the best way to do it is just get over there and spend time in these gardens. Um, you know, the, the immersive experience is just astonishing to, to wander through something like Sissinghurst or Modest Fawn or something like that. Even the smaller garden, the private goods, it's just amazing. Well, and when you, you see those gardens, you know, I've been getting a lot of credit lately to even uh, Fergus Garrett at Dixter and Aaron at, at Aaron Bertelson at Dixter have been doing yeah. a lot of online courses, which I think are brilliant. Mm-hmm. And how, this is a big question, Paul, how did we, how do you see as, as doing this for a while now as a profession, how do you see that disconnect? Cause there clearly is one, Paul. I think if everybody's being honest, when you hear some of the the great gardens over in Europe and hear about layered planting and timing. I think there's also a misconception that a lot of what is being done in these gardens is essentially being done with annual bedding plants. When in fact, a lot, most of what we see in particular places like Dixter, which has got a bit of its own always unique style, that it's actually just done with layered planting with a lot of forethought on when and how and how big and creating this tapestry where they feel like they're looking at it more as a painting of the whole versus the individual plant or flower. Yeah. It's, you know, I think a lot of it's just in the DNA. You know, if, if you grow up with that, you're going to, that's just going to be who you are, you know, and, and when you put together something like this, um, you know, in, in America, a lot of it, like you said, it's been, you know, more landscaping to hide the foundation of the plant or line the driveway or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, you get in New England, I think you begin to see some more flower gardens. Certainly the Pacific Northwest is, is in the tradition as well. You know, and I, I, I don't know what the disconnect is. I wish I did know, um, to be honest with you. Um, it feels you know, like the million dollar question sometimes, Paul, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It is. And I think, I mean, I know with roses, the disconnect has always been for reasons that we've been talking about is that a lot of the roses sold in America, you know, but, uh, you know, before 20 years ago, were not great garden plants. Um, in some instances, you couldn't underplant them because they couldn't compete. Um, but that's changed. And and certainly old garden roses are are great garden plants. David Austin roses, they breed them to be great garden plants. They encourage you to to plant perennials with them. Um, so I, I don't know what the disconnect is. I wish, again, like you said, if, if, if it's the million dollar question, I wish I could crack it. The only thing that I try to do, I think the thing to do is for those of us who do garden this way, is to continue to say, you know, that's okay to put perennials into your garden and try to educate a little bit and teach a little bit. Um, I do it with my Facebook group. I'm constantly posting articles about garden design and, you know, little takeaways and little tips. And I read it and I try to distill two or three points. So, okay, here's your takeaways, folks. You know, um, I did it on the garden tour. Uh, I t- when the first moment we were on the bus and we were heading over to our first garden, which was Sissinghurst, I told everybody, I said, you're going to be seeing gardens on a scale that you probably have never seen in a style that you've probably never seen as well. I said, you're going to be blown away and you're going to be intimidated. Um, but I used Vita Zach Phil West as an example who created Sissinghurst. I said, you know, she was an amateur gardener once too, just like you were. And, you know, she studied and she learned. And I said, here's the thing. We're going to go through these gardens. And what I want to get to you guys when you get back is I want you to take two or three takeaways that you can say, hey, you know what? I can do that at home. 
And that's what we did at the end. We went through on the bus ride back from David Austin back into London. We just kind of talked about, hey, what did you learn? You know, I learned how to peg a rose. I learned it's okay to put perennials. And I still get emails from people saying, look at this. You know, I, I, I saw this in England. I added this to my own garden and it's working. It's like, yes, yes, yes. Now we're getting some success, success going. Well, and, and I think, honestly, people, because you guys, I'm sure everybody that listens regularly, is like, here he goes again, talking about the European versus the American philosophy of gardening. It really is philosophy. It yes, really it is. It, it, it yeah. is absolutely. In their blood. And it's a fundamental difference. And one of the things that I I wanted to explore with you a little bit is like Pete Aldoff, whose work is worldly, you know, across the the entire world. Yeah. And actually, my family's Dutch, and that's the reason I'm fairly aware of Pete. I actually went to, when I was in in, uh, The Hague last year before I did the trial, I was visiting my cousin and her husband. And we actually went, I can't remember, it's a museum. I can't remember the name of the museum off the top of my head, but it was a Pete Aldolf garden. Yes, yes. I've read a lot of them, but I've never been immersed in a Pete Aldolf garden. And I spent, they let me spend two hours there just wandering through. And it was an amazing experience to actually wander through that. And I remember coming out of that Pete Aldolf garden, which is more prairie style gardens, and think, you know what? I could see drift roses in here. I could see, you know, wild roses in here. The philosophy is the same. You could actually tweak that Pete Aldolf style and actually work roses with it as well. But the, the similarities and the structures of what Pete does is similar to, to really any kind of garden, but he's, he's, he's a genius. He's brilliant. Well, and I think that's exactly what I wanted to explore with you is we've got this naturalistic style that Pete really, you know, invokes. But yet when you break it down, which by the way, kids, I think he's another person who's been very generous with his time over the the global pandemic moments here. So there's a lot of content out there. I've thrown a lot of things up there as well that he is talking about long season of interest plants, plants that have structure that it feels to me now at some point you and I will get him alone in a room, Paul, and we'll have a few drinks and we'll get him to use some roses in some of these big public gardens that he's been doing, but that's another story. But (laughs) don't you feel that that same thing you already said that, it completely makes sense. The the structure, the long season of interest, the companion planting, uh, some of the roses that produce such good hips for winter interest even or late fall in our part of the world more likely that you can see the concepts. And what I get a little bit concerned with is that people get a little recipe driven with this, right? I'm going to mm-hmm. do a garden and I'm going to go buy these recipes of these plants and that's not what the point of those British gardens that you're talking about or Pete Oldoff's work. That's not the point of the gardens. It's not to go get a recipe list of plants. It's to understand the concepts. Do you agree with that? Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking maybe we've begun to unlock the million dollar question. Um, so if you go to Europe and study the gardens there and study Pete Oldoff's work and, and, you know, Graham Stewart Thomas is Madison Abbey and you just, just read, basically just read a lot about design, um, they focus, and this is my philosophy as well, they focus on the foliage in terms of form, contrast of form, contrast of color, texture, contrast of texture, and then they hang the flowers on it. And America, I think we're flower driven. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at, I gotta have flowers. I gotta have flowers, 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 flowers. And that's not what makes a garden interesting. What makes a garden interesting is the foliage. And I read a great article about three or four weeks ago as I was just kind of posting stuff to my, my Facebook group. And they said one of the most interesting things you can do to your garden is go out and shoot it in black and white. 
and shoot it in black and white and then take a look at the picture. And if the picture is interesting, then you know your your foliage and your your growth structure and all of those contrasts and textures and blends are working well. If the photograph is boring, then it's not working well. And then you know what? Your garden's kind of going to be kind of boring as well. So don't use the flower as the main driving force. You plant a garden for the foliage, for the texture, for the contrast, the different sizes, shapes, et cetera. And that's, I think, the difference in the philosophy. And I think if, if we can start getting people to pay attention to that, I think gardening becomes so much easier when you do that. Because most people can, can do that. They say, oh, I've got a round plant. Let me contrast it with an upright spiky plant. And you're off and running. That's exactly one of the keys is when we look at this subject, kids, we've got to get, because what you just said, Paul, is a thousand percent. Everyone knows who's listening. Go back and listen to the reboot episode if you haven't already. Again, what's wrong with your life? For me, what I saw a lot in growing so many dahlia, dahlia, depending upon where you're from in the world, in the last two years, six, 7,000 of the plants, Paul, yeah, they're fine. They're great. But really, the way to look at them is a late season of interest pop of color. Yes. That's really what they are. For yeah. most of the year, it's a relatively boring, upright, vegetative growth plant. That's really what it is. They don't hit their peak till late season. Now, what's great about that is they don't hit their peak till late season. That's yeah. the strength Perfect. of them. But if you yeah. have a garden that is just those, and that's what we see happen a little bit. You mentioned it with rose shows and people that mm -hmm. grew for that. It starts to become the same kind of problem, right? Where we're just now we're down the cultivar chasing window and we're just looking for varieties that we don't have. And now we're like a Pokemon collector circa 1997. Yeah. We've got to catch them all. We have a list. Gotta get, we got to get them all. That's it. And if you get them all in one place, some kind of magic horn sounds off and you go somewhere. It's like that problem, I think, disconnects us from yeah. gardening and it becomes collection where it just becomes like county fair, I'm going to grow the biggest dahlia that I can kind of approach. So some of the people you mentioned, they've come back, they're starting to do those things. Did, did you have a particular garden that you toured that you felt really was something that gave people that, that insight to what we're talking about? Yeah, I think, and I was not shocked by it, Modest Swan Abbey. Um, was the one that really, and it was day three, and I think that helped a little bit because they had already sort of gotten into the groove of what we were doing. Um, Sissinghurst was right up there, and we had a Sissinghurst. We were we were very fortunate. We the, the, the tour company I work with has been doing it for so long. The garden doesn't open till eleven. We got in at nine thirty and had a ninety minutes in the garden with the head gardener at Sissinghurst, and there was a lot of great info. But I think that was just soaking it in, just by like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Um, you know, and by the time we got to Montesfont and we toured the, with the head gardener there, Johnny, um, and I told him ahead of time, I said, these are plant people. I want you to get plant walking with these people. And we really talked a lot about companion planting and working with it and how to use it and how to do it. And I think that's when I really began to see it go. And then we did some sessions with Michael when Marriott, when we got to David Austin. And by then that was the last garden we did. And, you know, we had, we had him on the line and Michael, of course, to no surprise, brought it home. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just, it was so rewarding to see these people wander through these gardens and go, wow, not only a, is this amazing? I can do this at home in a smaller scale. And they did, you know, and, and that's, that's, that was the good part about it. You know, when you were talking about the dahlias earlier, the thought that came to my mind was their late season, which is great, 
you know, but they've got a really interesting foliage. So find out about a summer blooming plant in front of the dahlias that's maybe got some contrasting foliage that the dahlia sets off really well. Then the dahlia, that keeps the dahlia interesting, even if it's not in bloom. Then when the dahlia blooms, that plant in front of it shuts down and sets the dahlia off. That's that layering of gardening that we're talking about. Well, and there is also no need sometimes. People get very caught up. You know, you've seen this with roses. You know these people. Paul, I know these people, mm-hmm. right? That sure. it's not sure. about the cultivar all the time. Some of the older varieties that have been on the market that are a little tried and true, you don't have to break the bank, you know, Dahlias, I was just talking about this this morning on an Instagram live that, you know, Emery Paul, which has been around forever, is fine. If you want to just do a large, oversized dinner plate, pink, soft tone, large dahlia, they've been growing Emery Paul at some of the European gardens now for 30 years. So there's not this pressure to go out and buy this like rare variety even all the time. Did you feel... You know, you mentioned Michael and Michael Marriott, former guest, friend of the show, kind of conversation kids. Um, Have you been happy because you've been sharing content for a long time that there's been in this global pandemic pause moment, more people from the industry, really good people, Paul, like credible people, not crazy Uncle Larry. You know what I'm saying? We all know he's got a Facebook group, but we don't want to go near it. You know, he's telling you to put banana peels in your sock when you go outside and fertilize with that, outward facing buds. He's waxing moon, wearing blue underwear. Yeah, he's out there. He's got paraffin wax. He's covering cuts that he made. He's got it on his hands. It's a very Buffalo Bill, Silence of the Lambs kind of moment, people. Do you... Are you happy to see that, that there feels like in this period, we've had other people talking, Paul, and, and I think that has, it's got to be important at some level. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. I mean, I see some great voices and some incredible content being put out there by people, um, you know, and, and I just think it's going to help. Um, and I also think people, I see people are out there willing to weed through, help people weed through it. Uh, you know, it's, it's again, one of the reasons I started my own Facebook group is I've been doing education, as you know, for 20 years. And, um, you know, I, I've got people, I invite guests on, I mean, you know, the, the sales manager for David Austin, North America, Rebecca Bullcorntrum is, is, is on my group and I can tag her and say, Hey, Rebecca, someone's got a David Austin question. Can you please jump in? Um, Mark Windham, you know, if we get a Rose Rosette disease question, I tag Mark and he answers it. So, and I think people, what I like is, is that I see people coming onto the group who were saying, I tried several other groups, but I just didn't really feel like I was given good information. And and they say, you know, I feel like here I'm getting honest information and good information from people who know what they're talking about. And But like you said, the content, I mean, you know, Monty Don, who I, I'm very fond of, a uh, British garden presenter, as I'm sure you know who he is, um, puts out some very nice content that I've seen. So I'm seeing some really, really good stuff coming out. David Austin is doing a whole line of Rose Care videos that are really excellent. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see that. And I think because of the pandemic and people having to sit still, they, that's their entertainment right now. You have to go on the internet. And I think people have got a pretty good BS radar detector amongst themselves, particularly gardeners who've been gardening a while. They can tell when someone's trying to sell them a bill of goods. Um, so I'm seeing some wonderful content and I'm glad to see it. And I'm glad to see it globally. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, the European style of gardening, which I happen to adore. Um, and I see more and more people embracing because they're starting to be able to understand it now because the content's out there. Well, and I think there was this moment, I'll, 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 I'll throw a shot out here, people, you know, guys, no, I don't care. Uh, Garden Web was this really interesting place for a long time online. Yes. And there was this good and bad of this 
that it was an old school message board forum. Mm-hmm. And you had people that would post questions in it and people would reply or people would share something they were doing and other people would reply. And I think that was okay. But there was a downside to this too. We did have crazy Uncle Larry. He was also on these message boards. And occasionally people would chime in with this really anecdotal information, Paul. And yeah. I've I've been hopeful that with some of these super credible sources like yourself and, and people like Professor Wyndham and all mm-hmm. of the people that we're talking about, that that was sort of out there. That's the good and the bad of 2020 information, right? People yeah. say it's out there. And unfortunately, it stays out there sometimes. And I felt like there was about a 10-year period where if you did a Google search on some of these subjects, that was one of the early results on it. And sometimes yeah. you had crazy Uncle Larry talk on there. Oh, God. I remember some of the stuff that was posted on that thing. Boy. And, and, none yeah, of it it was, was- and none of it was good for anyone at the end of the day, right? Yeah. It wasn't good for the industry from an economic perspective. And it certainly wasn't good for average home gardener, entry level, experience level, whatever it is. And I, we've talked about this on the podcast recently as well, that there needs to be more 2.0 content. There's been a lot of my five favorite perennials for shade, right? There's a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Like, like a lot of that as we never need another one produced ever again, people, please stop. No, no offense to anyone I know that does them maybe a little offense, but do you think that we're maybe ready for that next level? You know, where people are looking for maybe a little bit deeper content than just this sort of happy smiley kind of content that's always been out there. Absolutely. I think we are. And I think you're starting to see it. Um, you know, it's, you know, so on a, so like, for example, if I, if I, if I, if I write something or if I research an article or if I do a video or whatever the case may be, or if I'm looking through articles to post to my group and share with the group members, you know, I will occasionally list, you know, you know, good perennials for Mediterranean climates or something like that. But I don't list just I don't post something if it's just a list of perennials for Mediterranean climates. I want to know what to do with them. And that's the key to the whole thing. It's one thing to say, OK, these are the five best perennials for shade. OK, how do you use them? How do you use them together? How do you contrast them? What do you plant them? Do you plant them in groups? What do you do? So it, it, it's, it's got to be a combination. 2.0 has to be a combination of useful information. Like, yes, if you live in the southeast. These are great plants for the Southeast, but here's what you can do with them. Um, you know, when I list roses, for example, I'll say, okay, here's the rose and here's uses for it. You know, middle of the border, line of driveway, it's good in a pot. Um, you know, I could use it as a mass planted hedge. That's the whole key to, to, to the information. And I think that's what 2.0 has got to be. And I'm starting to see more content like that. People are saying, okay, yeah, you've done the five greatest perennials for the shade list, you know, a thousand times. Now that's not helping me any. Because my garden still doesn't look good. I need to know what to do. How do I use these perennials? Yeah. How do I use these plants? I I think that's a brilliant point. And I've referenced this comment that he made a long time ago on the podcast. I think it's true that uh, Paul Allen Smith was on and he made a comment that he thought if the way we had always been communicating a plant was working, Paul, that we'd see it more. Yeah. Like we'd see gardens. We'd see them. And we don't. I, I just I'll, I'll give everybody a little bit of insight here as we we head down the home stretch, kids. Um, I was driving through an area of Nashville here recently, 
I'm not going to give the neighborhood because then they're going to be listening, Paul. And they're going to be like, he said bad things about our neighborhood. Send the drones over you. Exactly. The, oh, oh, Paul, I have all the police after me. All the plant police, they're always coming after me. I, I get threatening messages in the mail, written magazine, cut out articles. It's very creepy sometimes. So I'm driving through this area the other day, and it's, a, it's an affluent area here in Nashville. Older neighborhood, very affluent, expensive, right? The people don't have the economic gap to garden, right? They can afford to go that direction. And I had never seen more homes consecutively that look like Home Depot vomited plants into their landscape, mm-hmm. right? Like that's all it was. Yeah. And you don't see it, right? If you see a rose, it is pretty predictable what it's going to be. You know, it's going to be a knockout rose. If you mm-hmm. see a, a line of hedging in this part of the world, it's, you know, it's Magnolia Grandiflora. It's pretty predictable again. It's Nellie Stevens Holly. Do you feel now in talking about this 2.0, and you've been making content and educating for a long time, do you, do you feel a certain sense of like freedom maybe coming about you that it's like, okay, maybe we're at a point because we've seen some of it not maybe be as effective as the industry. And I put a lot of the blame on the industry because I think they were the ones driving it because they're running a commerce-based industry, which I get. But they thought that was the most effective approach, right? What are we going to do to generate sales? So like those kinds of approaches seem to be the go-to for that. That maybe now people like yourself, people like myself and others who are a little bit more, let's use the word independent, Paul, um, that we can get away with it now. Like we don't have to go to those places that have been historically maybe sort of ineffective. Well, and, and what you just said, we, we can be more vocal and we can be more vocal because of social media. You know, we, I remember the garden web forum. You talked about that. I had a forum of my own for a while too. It was good, but it was limited in a way what you could do. It wasn't really a, as conversational. Um, and you know, Twitter is good. You know, you can tweet things out and that's all fine and dandy, but you can't really have a conversation with well, the Facebook groups. And I'm, I'm fine. I'm sure there's other platforms. I'm, I'm not just promoting the one, but first of all, you have so many people on Facebook. Um, it's a place gardeners seem to like to go because what do gardeners like to do? Share pictures of their garden. Um, and it's a much more conversational format that you can get involved with people. Uh, you know, it, it lets you know if someone's comment on your post, you can go back and answer their question. You can share pictures, you can get information. So I think it's, it's, there's just more, there's more avenues to get a conversation. You know, I have a book that was published by Taunton Press a number of years. People saying, you're going to write another book. And I said, yeah, I'm not really sure I feel the need to write another book. Uh, you know, I think there's a great platform already out there. You know, the videos for me, I'm a visual person. You know, I've done a lot of care videos. I'm going to start moving, morphing into design videos and, and how, you know, how to put things together and kind of work that way. So I, I think that's what's giving more people the vocal out there. And again, like I said, gardeners have got a really good BS radar. And I think they can look at someone, you know, uh, on for a minute or two on social media or on a video and go, okay, yeah, this person's credible or nah, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it has been interesting, right? Because there's yeah. there, there's two lanes here. I think Facebook skews a little bit older, Instagram skews a little bit younger. Yeah. I, I see there is a lot of currency on Instagram put into follower count, right? If this person mm-hmm. has 90,000 followers, even if they bought them, right? <laughs> that yeah. they yeah. somehow are credible. And this person has 900 followers. They are not as credible somehow, yeah. right? Just based upon that. Do you get a sense of that at all? That there is this sort of distinction between the social media platforms 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on Instagram. I'll be honest with you. I'm not an expert on Instagram, to be honest with you. Um, You know, I've started to work it more lately. Um, I am finding that I post, uh, I do post the content articles that I post on my Facebook group page as well to Instagram. And then I'm actually getting an incredibly strong reaction from that. Um, people saying this is great information. You know, I posted a simple article on the different, uh, different kinds of alliums and how to get like a six week allium bloom, depending on the variety that you're doing in terms of staggering them out. And I got overwhelming response from Instagram on that. Um, so I, you use them differently. I, do, I am learning that. Um, Instagram is not a conversational platform. It's more of an information platform. But, I, you know, as to, as to being oh, Facebook being skewed older, I think it probably is. I will say I've got a lot of young people on my Facebook group. And I think gardening, and I've always told people this, it's one of those funny little things, uh, businesses in the sense of, of so many businesses suffer from ageism. You know, the older you get, the, ah, what do you know? What do you know? Gardening's the opposite. I mean, if I think when I started doing this in my 30s, and, and certainly when I got into my 40s and stuff like that, I mean, my heroes were, you know, the Peter Beals of the world, the Ralph Moores of the world, the David Austins of the world who were in their 60s and 70s. And I think as you get more experience in gardening, I think, you know, you talked about freedom. I feel I have the freedom to pretty much say whatever I want. Um, you know, my bona fides and my street cred is done. You know, so, you know, I, I can go out and say whatever I want. And, and, and I'm obviously it's going to be fact based. It's going to be informational. I'm going to make sure I know what the heck I'm talking about. Um, but I've, I've, I hear as much from people who I can, I can tell they're in their like, you know, by, you know, they've got young kids or whatever, they're in their thirties or whatever. And I get as much uh, coming from them as anybody else. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure that, you know, Facebook being skewed older probably is, but, but I find it to be a very good platform. I like the interactive aspect of it. No. And I, I agree with what you're saying. I think it's one of those topics that also I want to hit on here. Yeah. Do you feel as if there is a group? We're not going to name names. I'll tell you guys if you DM me, I'll tell you the names. But outside of that, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the names. Okay, people, we're not going to say this. Is, this is public consumption. Okay, if you want private, that's why it's called private message. All right, that there is a group of content creators that are out there. They don't mention any of the names that you just did. They wouldn't know Peter Beal from, uh, you know, Peter Pan. Paul, I don't yeah. know. I didn't, couldn't think of another Peter. That some of them, you know, I think there's this conversation of, well, you know, it's good. It gets people in. But then I wonder, we see this a little bit with the indoor plant thing happening right now. Is it just of the moment, right? Do these people have the credibility that we're talking about? We get back to the misinformation that existed about Rose Rosette disease. That I get a little bit concerned sometimes that those are the type of people that will keep some of this, as I call it, crazy Uncle Larry speak going because they don't have that reverence for like what you were saying. And I'm that same way that we have these people that we looked up to as luminaries and still do. Yeah, there's always going to be the people out there who are, who are, you know, putting in key buzzwords to get the clicks and to generate the ad revenue and whatever it is they're trying to do. Um, you know, but that's been around for, you know, to me, they're like one hit wonders in the music business. You know, they're going to come and go and they're going to come and go and they're coming to go. But you know what? You know, the Beatles are still the Beatles. The Stones are still the Stones. U2 is still U2. You know, Sting is still Sting. Um, you know, and, and artists today that, that maybe I don't know about, I've mentioned they're, they're still going to be here 20, 30 years from now. So, you know, let the one hint wonders come and go. Um, that's okay. Uh, you know, as I said, gardeners have, have great radar 
for that kind of stuff. And sooner or later, they're going to they're going to want to get inquiring to the point that they're going to go look for content that they like your podcast. They're going to go look for content that they know is going to sustain them over the long term and be there for be around for a while. Yeah, and and do you feel that there really wasn't too? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on this, Paul. You can correct me if you feel differently. Obviously, but I don't think there was 2.0 for forever. I really don't. I I really I, I've taken some time in the last two three weeks to think about it. I don't know if there was 2.0 for the last 20, 30 years. I think if you were a person and you were right on the line there, there were garden magazines, but let's be honest, they were a lot of best top five kind of list things oh, over and over again. A lot of eye candy. That's, That's all it. Really there want. wasn't any conversation to it. There wasn't yeah. any talk of philosophy. It didn't have a lot of reverence or history to it. Do you feel like there maybe there just wasn't? No, I think there wasn't. I think I think it's because, you know, we were living in such a busy, you know, instant gratification world. Um, and, and it's, it's one of the ironies of this pandemic that we're in is that, you know, I did a, a thing for a different podcast and they, they said, you know, uh, gardening in place, gardening and sheltering in place. What, and one of the things that I talked about was even though I spent time in my garden, um, that I, that because I was at home and not really going anywhere and doing anything, I saw my garden more slowly. And I use that word on purpose because I really had a chance to really observe every single day, the slight transitions in the garden. And so I think what we knew has, we have a bunch of gardeners who are always hungry for information. I mean, gardeners are, are, are some of the most avid readers, listeners, viewers, because they, they want to learn. They really do once they get, once they get bit by the bug and then you do. And I think now they have the time to really dive into this. And I think that's going to allow us to give 2.0 because 2.0 is not going to be, you know, a tweet. 2.0 is not going to be a pretty picture magazine. 2.0 is not going to be a top five list. You're going to have to think. To, to do 2.0 you're gonna to have to be learn you have to challenge yourself and like we talked about in the beginning you're gonna to have to fail and you're gonna to have to be okay with failure but you know what 2.0 we're gonna tell you it's okay to fail because that's how you're gonna become a better gardener you know it's like when you ride a bike if you don't fall off you're never gonna learn how to ride it that's it and i think the word yeah. you know my friend jimmy blake used the word brave recently and i think that's a big part of this the conversation yeah. is you have to be okay with all of this, right? It's a, yeah. it's an expression I use a lot on a lot of content right now is you have to love all the parts of it, the good, the bad, the day the the compost guy delivers it, the guy the compost guy delivers the wrong thing, like the whole shooting match, the day the rose yeah. looks beautiful and the day the rose gets black spot and looks def- like it's going to defoliate every single leaf off of it, that all of it needs to be an engaged learning opportunity to evolve. Use a modern exactly. reference, people. It's like you're leveling up. If you were playing a video game, you need experience points and you level up. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad, but it's all leveling you up in what you're doing with plants and with gardening. Let's let's hit a couple of topics because we haven't even mentioned the name of one rose, Paul, I think, which is usually the way these conversations go, kids. You guys know this, right? If you just want yeah. names of roses, David Austin's website will give you a lot of names of roses that you can. I then, actually don't do a lot of names of roses talks, or, or I rarely talk about names of roses. I talk about more philosophy and growing and how to be, how to use them. That's it. Well, and, and that's yeah. the thing, right? We're we're coming down to what have you found yourself? Let's hit that topic as we wrap up here, and then I want to talk about the consultations that you're doing too, which sound really exciting. The when somebody comes to you. And they say, Paul, they're going to talk like this too. I need a climbing rose. I get blah, 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 sun. I want it to bloom 365 days a year, right? Let's maybe say it's not that outlandish. But what do, you, what do you say to people in those moments? I generally say, you know, 
the first thing I ask them is where they live. Um, and then I say, you know, I can't really give you, if, if you live in Washington State, for example, I can't really recommend roses to you because I don't know your climate. I tell them, you know, find uh, some local gardens, talk to some local gardeners. I said, you know, and this is one of the great things about the Internet is you can jump on, you know, a discussion group or, or Instagram or whatever the case is and say, I live here. This is what I'm looking for. And you'll have 15, 20 people in your region jump in and go, hey, this is a rose that fits your bill. I've grown it for 10 years. I live two miles from you. It's a great rose. So I generally tell people to go find regional information. I can maybe direct them towards a class. You know, if you tell me you live in the southeast and you want to grow older roses, I'll say, look at the old fashioned tea roses. They love the southeast. I can kind of, you know, go in that direction with it. Um, you know, I have a bad, bad black spot issues. OK, your Cortez, bred by the German breeder Cortez, are probably going to be pretty good for you in that in that sense of the word. I'll go that way. Um, but I rarely, rarely recommend specific roses. And I really don't do top 10 lists because, you know, what's top 10 for me ain't going to be top 10 for you, Steve, and ain't going to be top 10 for someone in California or somebody in England or somebody somewhere else. So I try to steer them towards a regional conversation. Do you find, you touched on this briefly, but do you find the rose growers, like you mentioned Cordes, some of the people, because now Star Roses has the license for those in this country at a larger scale. Do you find they're more prone, especially when you were involved with like the Biltmore trials, like they are trying to figure out ways to communicate as well? We mentioned David Austin's done a good series of videos as far as some care tips go. Do you think those companies are starting to look towards creating content that maybe speaks to some of this regionality also? Yeah, they are. Um, I really think they are. Like I said, I mentioned the AGRS, American Garden Rose Selection Trials, um, you know, which the industry is heavily you know, supporting in terms of entries and, and stuff like that. So I think they're beginning to grasp that regionality of it. Um, and I am starting to see, you know, Star Roses, they get plotted. I mean, Jackson Perkins. I mean, when I started with them four years ago, they hired me to do videos. Um, and, you know, to their credit, I walked into the office and, and was sitting down with the CEO or the president of the company. And I said, look, I said, you know, you've seen the kind of videos I do. He said, yeah. And I said, I'm sustainable. And he said, yes. And that's exactly why we want you. They never, ever, ever, ever advised me on content. I turned in a script so they knew what I was going to be doing. But they never told me to do a certain style. They said, we want you to talk to novice rose growers. We want you to tell them it's okay to have black spot. We want you to tell them it's okay to use other plants with them. And that's, that's, that created that whole series of videos. So, you know, like I said, Star Roses, I think they're doing some great content as well. They're, they're printing out some really nice stuff. So we're starting to see more of, of, of educational content as opposed to just here's a pretty picture because I can sell you this rose content. Educational content, Paul. So, so you've had time. Everyone's had time. Right. So you, mm -hmm. you have decided to do like some virtual online consulting for people's gardens. Yeah, it's it's I've done consulting. I mean, I was, you know, up until COVID, I was the uh, rose consultant to Biltmore. I did, I've done consulting with New York Botanical and other gardens, private gardens as well. And then with Jackson Perkins, we started and we shelved it for a while, um, an online garden design business, which I headed up and created. And I've done some virtual garden design where literally I designed a garden, a cottage garden, rose garden for somebody in California. And it worked extremely well. And the consulting is the same thing with with modern communication. And like you said, the, the magic machine in your pocket, you know, we can jump on Skype. You can walk me through your garden. I can do some consulting. I can do it. I can design a border for you, design a garden for you. And we can do it virtually. And, and I thought, you know what, with with the social distancing and the, the aspect of things going on right now, 
let's let's roll this out and see what happens. Um, and it's worked extremely well. Uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun. I really like it. I love, you know, it, it's just it's just so exciting to just you know jump in this with somebody who and maybe just spend an hour with them. That's about all you really have to spend. Who's struggling a little bit, and then you said them at the end of it, you've given them some simple tools for their toolbox. I encourage them to send me photographs afterward, and, then, and all of a sudden they're excited again, you know. And that's the most beautiful thing about it, you know. If it's a garden design, they say, "God, I've always wanted a rose and perennial garden," which a lot of garden designers won't touch, and that's not knocking garden designers. Um, you know, it's nice to give them that, and then a year later you get the photographs. They're so excited! Oh my God, look how this, this is! I, I love sitting there with a cup of tea in the morning, which is you know just music to my ears. So yeah, I'm in, I'm having a great time with it and and rolling it out and just you know throw it out there and let's see where it goes. Is some of it not only just what the technical know-how that you have, plant selection know-how that you have, but is some of it just the confidence thing for people, yes. Paul? I, yes. I, I really do feel like, because we get these same questions. So you and I are living this duality life occasionally on these type subjects where there's this trepidation that you hear in people's questions, even when written, I can hear it, people. So when you send yeah. me one of them, that's how I'm in, I'm reading it to myself, right? My mind, exactly. There's this like, yeah. I want to do, but I don't know. When should I? Could I do it? Should I ask the plant out on a date first? Like, what do we do? Yeah. Is some of it just that that we're just giving them the confidence, and in some ways, what is a weird word to use maybe for people to hear, but is autonomy, that it's your garden. Do whatever the hell you want to sometimes. Yeah. And I think the other word I use is permission. So a lot of times when I do these consultations, I'll wander through with the gardener and, and I don't consult by walking in and saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. I ask questions. Okay. You know, this, what's going on here? What do you think is going on here? Well, you know, and then they, they start to maybe talk a little bit. And I said, okay, what about this? And what about that? And, and so we kind of have these conversations going. And a lot of times I say, okay, now we, we kind of get an idea of what's going on here. So, you know, let's, let's check out some ideas. I mean, you know, have you read something that maybe gives you a solution? They go, yeah, you know, maybe I need to take a look at my pH. And I said, okay, that's a great place to start. Let's do that. Um, you know, or fertilizer programs or things along those lines. So that's a lot of it. And a lot of it comes back to, again, you know, the midsummer care and the the whole outward facing butt eye. Again, there's reasons if you exhibit why well, you need to be doing that. But a lot of it's they're saying themselves, gosh, you know, I've been gardening for 10 years and I've grown roses and I've grown perennials, I've grown dahlias, I've grown shrubs, and I feel like I should be able to do this with my roses. And I'll go, okay, what do you think you should be able to do with your roses? And they go, okay, well, here's kind of what I would like to do. And I went, okay, from a plant sense, I think that makes perfect sense. So I think one of my jobs as a quote unquote rose expert is to give people permission to use their own, what I call gardener's instincts. Yeah. And I, last question as we wrap up here, Paul, because this is something that I think you're probably one of the few guests who's willing to maybe tackle in a more honest way. You mentioned having people go over to Europe. We talked about that conversation of people seeing it. You mentioned your involvement with the Biltmore trials. Are you disappointed that there's not more places in this country for people to go see those type of gardens like what you saw in Europe? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do. I wish there were more. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I wish there were, I really do. You know, even botanical gardens that I've talked to and they say, you know, gosh, let's, let's do some perennials. Um, and they'll be like, ah, is this the boy? you know, it's, it's the rose garden. It's like, you know, do, you, perennials besides the beauty and the season long interest, they, they, they can be a host environment for beneficial insects. Um, you know, there's, there's a function to those perennials uh, that they have as well. And, and if you want to go call back to the very beginning of this conversation, we're talking about RRD and Mark Wyndham will tell you this. 
the mite can only live on a rose. So perennials in your garden are what Mark calls barrier plants. So if you've got a rose and then next to it, you've got a tall, you know, buddleia or something like that. And the mite gets blown into the buddleia before it gets to the rose on the other side. It's going to die. So there's a function to those. So I wish more people, Biltmore does. Uh, that was part of the work. I, they were already doing it to some degree when I got there. And they're very open about this. And I said, look, this is this is what we want to do. And we actually have a border in, in the walled garden in Biltmore that was created to bring in beneficial insects. Those plants weren't chosen just for beauty. They were chosen because they also have a job. Have you, throughout your career doing this, have you reached out to any of these botanical garden institutions in general and just, have you directly done it? Has it happened anecdotally at all? Because I am curious. And again, people, you guys can do the math here on where I'm located and, you know, places I may be speaking to. I'll let you guys do the secret decoder ring part of it. I am sometimes shocked at how little gardening and I think the level you and I have been talking about throughout this conversation at some of these botanical institutions is actually going on. And they feel much more like mass block planting approaches to gardening. Yeah, they do. And I have reached out. I did a campaign about three or four years ago, five years ago, maybe where I sent out maybe like 100 letters, introduced myself and offered my services. This is what I do, you know, and, and stuff like that and called and discussed. And I got like very little response. Um, so I, I think the thing to do now for me is to do what I'm doing, which is just talking about it. And, and, you know, and I'm beginning to find that people are finding me. Um, and I don't mean that to sound the way it sounded. That sounds a little arrogant. It's not meant that way. It's just because I've been doing this long enough. And so I, I, I would like to see more of it. I'd like to see the gardens doing this more. I'd like to see them certainly, you know, holding classes on using plants as opposed to just, hey, these 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 ones do well in your area. No, gardens are restricted by budgets. I get that. You know, it's not a lot of money. They don't have the the, the funding for gardens like you do in, in, in Europe. Um, but I, I would like to see more of it. Yeah, I really would. Do you find, as we last couple of questions here, Yeah. do you feel like it's interesting? Because I see this too. The end, we'll call them user, for lack of a better term. We'll just pretend we're doing a focus group. The end user, mm -hmm. the consumer, seems ready for some of this. But sometimes the institutions, in the case of botanical gardens, or in sometimes even the industry, don't seem as open to it, which is interesting to sometimes have this disconnect, like you and I are talking about. Like There is 2.0 going on. There's a need for 2.0. There's a need for more of these gardens in public spaces, at botanical gardens, with a more garden-centric approach to it. But yet, yeah. it's the consumer driving it, and sometimes almost reluctantly, the industry going along with it every once in a while. Well, I think that's what it's going to be. I think you know the gardens are going to do what the consumer wants to see. And if the consumer starts demanding that, hey, you know, why can't I see a garden like I see in, in Europe? Why can't I see a rose and perennial garden? Why don't you have one? They'll start thinking about it. Um, the other thing I think the, the, a big piece of misinformation out there is that a rose and perennial garden is a lot of work. Um, it's not. If you do it right, it, it's not. You know, it starts by picking the right plants for your area. I mean, a lot of perennials, as you well know, Steve, are incredibly carefree other than, you know, you trim them back in the summer and you trim them back in the late winter. Other than that, let them go. Uh, if you pick the right ones for your area. I mean, I've got about 4,000 square feet of rose and perennial gardens on this property. Um, it's organic. It's sustainable. You know, do I, I spend time in it? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm not out there every day for hours and hours and hours and hours. 
but again, I'm also willing to live with a little black spot, a little bit of damage, you know, I'll get the weeds when I can, you know, when I can, sometimes they get ahead of me. Um, but if done right, these kind of gardens are not a lot of work. And I think a lot of botanical gardens say we're short staffed, we're short funded. And I understand it. I get it. Um, you know, this is going to be a lot of work. It's like, no, if you do it right, it really isn't that much work. It really is. And then it becomes a labor of love. Well, and it's amazing when you hear the same places saying that, but then they plant out 7,000 coleus all together yes. in a giant block yeah. planting, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be happy to turn over like, you know, 5,000 square feet of pansies, but God forbid they should do roses and perennials. Yes. And no offense to all my <laughs> Dutch tulip grower friends, but then in the fall they plant out, you know, 75,000, 100,000 tulip bulbs. And I'm just yeah. sort of like, Ugh. Yeah. And you can do that in areas. I mean, Biltmore is a good example. The walled garden, there are, there are areas where that are turned over like that. You know, more of a more of a formal style garden, but most of the garden, the, the perimeters of the walled garden, certainly the rose garden, are planted more long term, um, and they focus on smaller areas where they're turning over. So the customers kind of get a little bit of everything going on. Last question for you, Paul. What do you think for you? You, you know, and and this is something that I've we've talked a couple of times about on the podcast recently with other folks. Um, what's the balance here of the business for Paul Zimmerman? versus the content. I think the one thing that I'm struggling with, and I'm curious for yourself as well, or anybody that's in our type of world, this balance of, okay, I need to pay bills. We need things that happen that make money, but then we also need to generate this content. And how do you do both? Have you have you found a balance in that that you're happy with? Is it something that you're always sort of retooling? You know, I don't, I don't look at them as disconnected. I think maybe that's how I deal with it. Um, you know, I've always worked for myself, so I've always promoted myself. And to me, there's promotion that you do um, that you may not necessarily get paid for. Um, you know, my background is stand-up comedy. So I'd go do TV shows that I got almost nothing for. But you did it. And so when I create content like the videos that I've created um, over the years and continue to create and then we're starting to ramp back up again on, it's, it's, it's getting content out there about something that I'm passionate about and something that I love. But other things come from that content. And so we were talking earlier about the people who put out, you know, the little bullet point tweets and things along those lines. You can either create content and let the rest come, or you can go in pursuit of the money, in which case it's not going to be as long lasting or as rewarding. So I pursue the content and the rest of it, you know, I have a wonderful 25 year old accidental career in roses and gardening. I've not planned any of it. You know, uh, it, it, I, I rarely go after something. I just do what I do to the best of my ability and somehow it finds me. I walk the cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here all I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way I never want to leave this 
brand new ham on But they're just whispers way up here They got no rhyme for the reason why it's wrong But there's still this burning in my ears So It's for you to 